comment, and then, and then we'll read the passage. It seems like what's going on in this section here, we have a number of sayings or teachings of Jesus that in other Gospels pop up in different spots. So Jesus' teaching on the salt and the millstone and cutting off your hand appears in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, and here it's in a later place. Uh, likely Jesus said these things more than once. They're uh, memorable devices. You can imagine he's teaching. Uh, and it seems like Mark, he's brought together a block of teaching on discipleship that's linked by various key words. So you'll notice as I read this that in verses 42 and 43, they both use this phrase, uh, uh, whatever causes someone to sin. Uh, 48 and 49 both use fire, but referring to different things. And then 49 and 50 both use the term salt, but again, it seems to be referring to different things. So uh, that seems like uh, likely what happened is this would have been, uh, of course, taught by Jesus, and then the disciples are, are keeping this alive in their memory. And so a block of teaching like this where you have you know, a number of salt sayings back to back, it's a mnemonic device to help you uh, remember his teaching. So it's like Marx brought this together into a block on discipleship. I'll read the whole passage here, 38 to 50, and then we'll break it apart. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell, where the, uh, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You can see a number of these sayings seem to have been originally independent. It's not quite as kind of a block of teeth what we've seen earlier in this section. Well, let's pray and then turn to uh, uh, discuss this together. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your teaching on how to follow, be followers of the way, how to follow the way you've laid out for us. Let us be sharpened by this teaching to be faithful disciples who live in the way you have shown us. Uh, grow our love for you and for our neighbors as we reflect on your word block out all distractions that we might focus on this teaching. Amen. Okay, the first teaching is, is this little section through 41. Any time in Mark's gospel, John acts or speaks on his own. A couple times John and James are together, or Peter, James, and John go up to the Mount of Transfiguration together, and Peter speaks for him. But this is the only time John speaks on his own in Mark's gospel. It's interesting to note in this way section, three times Jesus foretells that he's going to die when they get to Jerusalem. And after each one of the three uh, of Jesus' closest inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John, needs to be corrected. 
So after the first time, that's when Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, here, John needs to be corrected. And then after Jesus foretells his death the third time in 1035, James and John come to him and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. There, James is kind of the main spokesperson. So it's, it's interesting, Mark subtly is emphasizing even Jesus' closest friends are, are they're like, uh, remember that image at the beginning of the section, the blind man who says, I can see people, but they look like trees walking around. Their vision's not clear yet. They're starting to get it, but they don't have it clearly yet. Uh, so even the three closest need correcting. Well, what's John on about? Uh, these members of the inner circle in particular, you know, they've been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, have these intimate moments with Jesus, and that privileged position seems to be having some negative effect. Uh, they're kind of looking down on others, have a little bit of an elitist attitude. And so John comes to Jesus in verse 38, and there's four clauses. He says, we saw someone casting out demons. That's interesting. Do you remember what happens when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration? The disciples are trying to cast out a demon, and they're not able to. Uh, and, and so he's doing what the disciples uh, or the are able to do at least in this, in this earlier text. And yet it's something he does regularly, so it's in continuity with Jesus' own ministry. John says he, he was casting out demons in your name. Okay, so apparently he's a disciple of Jesus, uh, uh, doing things in Jesus' name, but he's not part of the twelve. Now, we do have to contrast this with the book of Acts that has a couple stories about, um, you remember Simon Magus in the book of Acts, or Simon the Magician? who offers money to be able to cast out demons and do what Peter's doing. Uh, or later, there's this weird story in Acts 19, uh, the seven sons of, I can't remember this guy's name, give me this. What's his name? Yeah, that's right, that's right, Skeva. Uh, and, and I think that the demons, uh, they try to cast out their itinerant Jewish exorcists, and they try to invoke the name of Jesus, uh, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They don't seem to have any personal knowledge of Jesus. Uh, and if you've read the book of Acts recently, it's this weird story where the demons uh, beat them up, and I think they flee naked. Um, so one of those strange stories, yes, they fled the house naked and wounded. So uh, they're overpowered, trying to use Jesus' name as sort of a magic omen with no real relationship. That doesn't seem to be the situation here. Jesus has no qualms about this person casting out demons in his name. But what does John say? We tried to stop him. And why does it say they tried to stop him? This is key to the story. Wasn't one of us, or uh, the ESV is even a little bit more specific there, uh, he was not following us. Notice what they're saying. He's not saying he wasn't following you, Jesus, and he was just trying to use your name, and so we tried to stop him. That would be appropriate. But he says he wasn't following us. He's not part of us disciples, and so we're trying to stop him. Uh, especially at this point, we're seeing the disciples hardly get what they're on about, and so it's presumptuous to say someone needs to follow us if they want to do ministry. But this raises this perennial question that's ongoing. Uh, certainly, it, it goes on in the early church. It goes on today. What do we do about true followers of Jesus who are doing work in his name but aren't one of us. They're not part of our group. Uh, we see this in the book of Acts, don't we? That there's uh, uh, different groups and, and seem to have different factions. When they go to Ephesus, they say, well, we know about Jesus, and we have the baptism of John, but not the Holy Spirit. So they kind of, you know, they have this other stream of, of missionaries that somehow they, they haven't gotten the full message yet. 
And then in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, right, Paul, some are saying, I follow Paul, some are saying, I follow Apollos. In Philippians, Paul says, some are preaching Christ out of good motives, some are preaching out of bad motives. There's this ongoing thing of, of there's different groups, they're kind of not part of us, what do we do about them? And the problem just becomes even bigger today of, you know, what do we think about uh, the church uh, 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 down the guide that's a, a Calvary Chapel or the Slavic, Reforma- Slavic Gospel uh, I can't think of the full name. What's that? Is that what it is? I, I, I drive by it every day on the way to church. I don't know why I always forget. What do we do about it? They're doing work in Jesus' name, but they're not following us. They're not doing it quite the way we do. What do we do about that? Well, what's Jesus' response? Don't stop him. Don't stop him. For a person who does mighty works in my name doesn't go to blaspheme me, saying evil about me right away. Notice a few things here. The centrality comes in my name. Uh, But this general principle as well, the one who is not against us is for us, is what Jesus says. But you see the dividing line. There's no neutral ground. Either they're against us or they're with us. Jesus is the dividing line. There is an interesting question here. Uh, In Matthew... Chapter 12, Jesus has a a similar teaching, but it's a little bit different. Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Kind of seems like there's a little bit of a tension there. But notice in Matthew, Jesus says, Who is not with me. If they're not doing it in my name, then they're against me. Here in in Mark, he says, uh, Don't stop them for if they're not against us then they're with us. It's plural, with us. Uh, so Jesus himself is this, is this bright, dividing line. Either you work in his name or you're ultimately against him. That's unavoidable. And yet we need to recognize that there are other people that aren't, you know, they're not with us in the sense of, uh, you know, part of our denomination or our church. And yet, nevertheless, they're working in Jesus' name. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will no means, by no means lose his reward. It's one of the few spots in Mark's gospel that Jesus calls himself the Christ. Uh, but he takes that on himself. He says, I am the Christ. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ. That's really strong language there. That the uh, disciples belong to the Messiah, to Jesus. Uh, If they do this for my sake, they will have a reward. Even the humblest act done for Christ's sake will be rewarded by God. And again, this picks up teaching that we see in Matthew 25 about whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Again, there's this emphasis on hospitality there. Any other thoughts on this this first little section? Yeah, Jam. Well, we don't see really in the dress. Today, people will talk about the Jesus spirit or the Christ spirit. And it's a totally different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. You know, they'll use his name, maybe it's kind of like the seven sons of Stephen, really. You know, it's that, you know, that whole spiritual new age. Yeah. Sort of yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting, I'm getting ready for Philippians in the fall. And there, part of the thing is, you know, Paul's talking about some preach uh, Christ out of selfish ambition or something like that. Um, and at least one 
one uh, preacher draws a connection with the sort of health and wealth preaching because there's, you know, it's, there's clearly a selfish motivation to it. And yet, insofar as they rightly proclaim Christ, great, that's good that Jesus is being preached. And yet, we do recognize that there's something a little bit faulty there as well. So, uh, yeah, we do need to exercise discernment as well. Yeah, Pete? Well, I was thinking the same thing, maybe along little different lines, that it would probably be important to define what being with Jesus means. Mm -hmm. I have some really good friends that are LDS, and they certainly would not say that they're against us. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that they're against us. Yeah. But I wouldn't exactly say that they're with us or yeah. with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, this is yeah, no, it certainly raises questions, and that's that's especially hard to say to someone. I know you think that we're on the same page, but we're really not here. That there's, uh, uh, yeah, and certainly uh, this whole this this little individual saying doesn't stand on its own. There's this whole teaching here about this is what discipleship looks like: the way of self-denial, the way of following Christ, all these sorts of things that that are all part of it as well. Uh, flesh out. Yeah, Leslie. And I was kind of looking at this too, the opposite way, like. Yeah. Here at the chapel or elsewhere, so you look like you're following us, yeah. but you're not doing things in the name of Jesus. Yeah. You might be actually against, you know, working against it just through your sin in your life or whatever. Yeah. Um, not like a part of the church, but not really yeah. part of the body. That, yeah, so it balances with some of Jesus' other teaching about um, the weed and tares growing up together, and at the final harvest, there's going to be sorting. Or even in, in Matthew 25, when he says, whatever you do for the least of these, there's people who think they've made it. And Jesus says, hang on a second, you didn't do anything for, for me when I was in prison, when I was sick, when I was in need. And they're like, hang on a second, when did we have these opportunities? When did you see those? Uh, and so, yeah, there's even this warning that some people who think membership alone is going to be sufficient to get them into heaven or I think it's a good reminder to us, though, that sometimes uh, I think uh, Ben and I were even talking, uh, uh, well, I guess a couple times recently, but you know, there's all these different college ministries on campus, and, and you can get kind of uh, possessive and say, well, we support RUF, and so that's really the right one, and you need to be skeptical about these other college ministries at uh, uh, Western or whatever. And, and I think the right attitude following out of this is, well, you know, Kyle is preaching Jesus on campus. Uh, the, is it the end? Is that what it's going to be? You were preaching Christ tonight? These things that are, even if, even if we have some questions about certain aspects of his ministry. So uh, I think it's a good reminder to us to not be um, narrow, that if someone's not, because uh, it, 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 it's saying they're not following us, so it's a sociological thing, not a theological. It's not that they don't proclaim Christ, they're working in his name, but it's saying, but sociologically, they're not doing it quite the same way we do, that, uh, uh, you know, that we do a liturgy like this, and we don't sing songs like that, and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's easy to get uh, caught up in. Okay, so we turn now in 42 to 50 to this series of linked sayings that in different ways reflect on the cost of discipleship. Uh, the first comes in, in, in verse 42. 41 said, whoever... Um, uh, oh, oh, the logic is, is, is parallel. It's sort of the opposite of 41. So 41 saying, uh, uh, whatever you do for the least of these in my name or, or for my sake, you'll be blessed for that. But then 42 saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better to have a millstone tied around their neck and to be cast into the sea. So it's, it, it's the flip side of it. It's saying there's a blessing for serving even the humblest act of service for Christ's sake, but there's also a warning 
about stumbling, uh, causing others to stumble. Uh, we don't always think about this. Oftentimes we emphasize that you are responsible for your own actions, and that's true. That if you sin, you're, you're exercising volition in that, and you're responsible for that. And nevertheless, Jesus teaches here that we can cause others to sin. Uh, the term here is literally, or stumble, the term is uh, 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 scandalizing, uh, what we get our word scandalize from, that you can scandalize weaker believers, little ones, by our actions. Jesus says it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the, into the sea. So uh, in, in ancient Israel, these millstones were large stone discs that had to have animals or several people turn them, and it ground the, uh, uh, the grain in it, uh, whatever the grain was, to mill it uh, into flour. And so it's a sort of hyperbole that's classic of Jesus' teaching. He's saying something like, it's better to have a combine harvester tied around your neck and to be tossed into the bay. You know, that kind of just over the top. Uh, the mob put the little cement around your feet, but this is way more than that. It's, it's over the top saying it's better to have, you know, the sort of worst death imaginable than to cause someone to sin. And then uh, uh, cause someone to sin. Uh, you could cause someone else to sin. There's a warning about that in 42. Then 43, 44. Uh, my Bible doesn't have verse 44. I guess I'm understanding why there's no 44, but 43, 45, 47, uh, and 48. Uh, is that your, your Bibles are all the same? Okay, yes. Uh, the one I'm using here at least doesn't have a footnote, but I'm sure it's manuscripts, uh, older manuscripts that uh, don't have those verses and, and, and later add in, add in stuff. Uh, sorry, I should have looked that up a little bit more before, uh, before, before tonight. But uh, uh, all that to say, 45. 43, 45, 47, they all use that same phrase, cause to sin, cause to sin, cause to sin. Okay, it's, it's don't cause someone else to sin. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck. But also, if something causes you to sin, get rid of it. Again, Jesus is teaching through hyperbole here. The point is that the kingdom of God is so valuable that getting into the kingdom is so important that it's better to lose hands, feet, eyes, anything. That the, and certainly Jesus isn't saying that those things are worthless or the body's not important. He's saying these are super valuable things that uh, for many of us thinking, you know, going blind would be something that would be very hard to live with or losing use of our hands or feet would be very hard to live with. And yet Jesus is saying, even as valuable as those are, it's better to lose those than to miss out on the kingdom of God. Yeah, Nate. Uh, missing verses 44 and 46 um, is, are identical to verse 48 where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Oh, okay. So it's just repeated yeah. two times. Okay, I think I did read that in the commentaries then and just kind of my eyes glazed over a little bit. <laughs> I was recovering from COVID this week, so I guess that's my excuse for not, uh, not picking up on those things. Yeah, uh, and that verse 48 is a quote actually from the very last verse in the book of Isaiah. But right before we get there, um, it's better than to be cast into hell. This word hell that's used is, is in Greek, uh, Gehenna. It refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which would be in the southwest of Jerusalem. So the opposite side of Jerusalem from the uh, uh, Mount of Olives. And it's a place where uh, when Israel was apostatizing and Judah in, in the days of old Israel, they would offer child sacrifices. And it was so abhorrent that when Josiah started driving all that out, he turned it into the garbage dump. And he's saying, here's the best way to just destroy this this evil religion is just to turn it into the garbage dump and so that's that's what it became as a garbage dump 
and there were apparently perpetually burning fires there that you know people were burning the garbage and it just always kind of was a low-level smoldering fire. Uh, the best illustration I thought, and sorry, maybe you guys are going to throw things at me, but uh, in The Simpsons, there's a tire fire at the beginning always in the intro in, in Springfield. Okay, it worked for <laughs> Nate Gibson at least. So now you guys know who the chief sinners are in the, no, I'm joking. In the, but it's this kind of perpetually smoldering, firing garbage dump. Uh, and if you ever burned garbage, not burning it, but if you ever burned garbage, you know it's not a great smell that's going on, burning uh, you know, refuse, feces, rotten meat, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like the worst imaginable place. Jesus is saying it's better to make it in the kingdom of God than to wind up there. And then he has this quote from the very end of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66, and I think it's verse 25. Uh, in my notes, I just wrote last verse of Isaiah. I forgot to write what the verse number is. It is 66, uh, 24. Um, the end of Isaiah, if, if you can think back to that, ends with this great uh, looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth, a renewed Jerusalem. Uh, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, month to month, week to week, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So it's this, this great vision of the nations coming to a renewed Jerusalem in a new heavens and a new earth. And yet there's also a warning of a final judgment that will discriminate between those who follow the Lord and those who do not. And so it ends by saying, they shall go out and look on the body, dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Okay, so Isaiah ends with this vision of a final judgment, uh, and Jesus is, is, is uh, alluding to all of that, that there is a new heaven, a new earth, and being part of the kingdom of God is how you inherit that, and yet there is this risk of missing out. It's, it's, it's a hard teaching, and yet it's a, it's a firm teaching that we need to hear of. Uh, he's pointing to uh, uh, how important it is the kingdom of God and how it relativizes the value of everything else. Uh, I know this is a little bit of a dated reference, sorry, but FOMO, fear of missing out, that we have that of, you know, I'm missing out on this or I'm missing out on that. I'm not getting to watch this TV show because it has things in it that my parents say I shouldn't watch or, you know, whatever that is. Uh, uh, and, and we can get caught up in that saying, well, I feel like I'm missing out on all these experiences or things that I want to do. And yet Jesus is saying, here's the ultimate fear of missing out. Missing out on the kingdom of God is such a big deal that it relativizes anything else. That if you have to say, we're not going to listen to that music, we're not going to go to that place, we're not going to do these things. Yeah, you're missing out in a sense. Uh, but the main prize is so valuable that it relativizes all things. Yeah, Nate. It's interesting. It's, uh, it's better for you to enter life lame. Um, like, is that becoming a Christian? Is that the, the entry in the kingdom? Is that. Um, but it's uh, this picture of someone who's crippled or maimed or something, and yeah. that is entering life. Yeah. Like the, the actual casting off of something that was, uh, would destroy you ultimately. Yeah. That's actually entering life. Yeah. We think it's the opposite. Yeah, it, yeah we think, uh, especially in our day and age where we uh, almost idolize health and, and physical fitness, and uh, 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 certainly I run the risk of... <laughs> You know, that challenge of that, that being an idol, and yet Jesus is saying even, yeah, 
it's better to be lame, blind, uh, not, not be able to use our hands than to, and, and yet we can still have abundant life even in that sort of a context. And I guess maybe um, Joni Erickson Tata would be a good illustration of that, who's someone who has abundant life, full life, uh, even in the midst of uh, physical limitation. I would guess it's just poetic variation of saying okay. that, you know, the kingdom of God and life are the same, the same, same thing. thing. Yeah, yeah good, good observation there. Okay, then uh, this thing about the fire not being quenched, but verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. What's that about? Uh, Jesus seems to be, uh, and, and if it's teaching from different occasions being brought together, it, it especially makes sense, but he seems to be switching modes here. The fire does not here seem to be referring to eternal judgment, but to trial and testing, a sort of fire that everyone experiences. Uh, and on, in the Old Testament sacrifices, salt was put on the altar with the, the meat and the fire, and that's kind of together part of the image. Uh, uh, perhaps that it's, you know, we're, we're, our, our trials is like a sacrifice, or smoking meat and salting meat would be ways of preserving meat in the ancient world. This trial tests you, but ultimately preserves you. It's a short saying, and I think that this is the only gospel that contains it, For uh, uh, everyone will be salted with fire. And then verse 50 is picking up the same language of salt, but it seems to have, have slightly shifted images here. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Certainly here he seems to be picking up uh, salt as a preservative, that it's meant to preserve from decay. And this was somewhere that caught my attention because I've always wondered what is, what is this business about salt losing its saltiness? Well, salt we buy at the grocery store is made uh, salt, uh, but in Jesus' day, most of the salt would have been from Dead Sea and had impurities in it as well. Apparently, that salt could get stale and flat and kind of get a funk to it over time uh, and, and had to be chucked out. And so that's apparently how salt loses its saltiness is, is it's impure salt gathered from the Dead Sea shores. And uh, that's the story about that. But what Jesus is saying here is, is it, is that uh, salt is good, it's a preservative, but if you lose that preserving function, how do you make it salt again? Have salt in yourselves that preserves you, and, and, and the best sense we can make of this is picking up Jesus' language in the Sermon on the Mount about being salt and light in the world. Have salt in yourself, be preserved from the decay of the world, and be at peace with one another. Again, you see how these, these it, it seems like Mark's saying, oh yeah, there's another thing Jesus said about salt that I also want to put in here, and so I'm going to plug it in right here. Uh, it seems like how this is how, how, how Mark put it together. Any other uh, uh, comments or thoughts on, these, on this teaching here? kind of goes back to the, it's talking about the man not um, being against them, as for them, but be at, be at peace with one another. Yeah. I mean, like seeking to get rid of the sin in your own self. You don't have a lot of time to pick up other people's yeah. sin, and that will make you be at peace. And yeah. Like we talked about this morning at the, at the end of the process. Yeah, yeah. That we need to, that our our issues are different than other people's issues. And we need to keep that in. And, and, yeah, be at peace with one another, and certainly that is. Um, 
Paul's response in his letters to these sorts of conflicts between slightly different, denomination is the wrong word, but slightly different brands of Christianity uh, getting practiced in the, in, in the Roman world. And, and that tends to be his line, is, is let's be at peace with each other, keeping first things first. We know where he got it from. Love one another, be at peace with one another. Well, let's turn to our time of prayer before we uh, sing a final hymn.